Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to another episode of Warden's Wisdom. I'm your host, Jimmy Warden. On today's episode, I am going to be talking about habits. I had a previous episode uh, in the podcast series titled The Phenomena of Habits, and this specific podcast episode about habits is in reference to my current read, uh, Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything by Dr. B.J. Fogg, who is the founder of Stanford's Behavior Design Lab. Now, this is a pretty phenomenal book that I've been reading thus far, and it's really practical in terms of how we can implement tiny habits to then start making some larger changes in our lives. So my goal is to really try to go through some of the models that Fogg has created, and as well as some of the, his strategies and tips for how we can start to create some better systems and put those into play when it comes to either creating new habits or breaking old habits. So if that's something that you're interested in trying to do, look no further than this podcast. And with that being said, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors, and then we'll get right into the episode. A lot of us set out to make changes about ourselves, most often around habits that we either want to create or habits that we want to stop. Perhaps we want to start exercising more. Perhaps we want to start eating in a healthier manner. Perhaps we want to start beginning a meditation practice. Maybe we want to save some money. Maybe we want to build better relationships. Maybe we want to drive in a safer manner. Maybe we want to start reading again. Maybe we want to begin writing or anything else in between that perks your interest. Perhaps we want to stop spending impulsively. Perhaps we want to stop eating so much sugar. Perhaps we want to stop scrolling social media. Perhaps we want to stop binge-watching TV. Perhaps we want to stop absorbing negative news sources or something else that we want to stop doing. No matter what the changes that we want to make, just about everything that we do in life is a behavior that has turned into a habit. From the time we wake up in the morning to making our morning cup of coffee to the route that we take to work to the way that we enter our home after work, to what time we have our meals, to the time that we brush our teeth, and just about any other behavior that we take part in every day has most likely been somehow formed as a habit. And the big challenge with these habits is that we often want to change a lot of them at once, or we want to try to make a grand change with one of those behaviors or with one of those habits overnight. Unfortunately, when we take that approach, we're actually setting ourselves up for failure, and oftentimes a side of guilt and a side of shame comes with that. We have guilt and shame towards our actions, or we actually are also feeling guilty or shameful about our lack of change in our actions. The good news is is that it's not that we lack anything, or it's not that we're adequate enough, or that we're not able, or that we're insufficient but rather we lack the proper systems and routines to go about our changes, which is why today I'm really going to talk to you about why it's so important to start small when you want to change some of your habits. And there's actually a brilliant book that was recently published in, I believe, December 2009 titled Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything by Professor and Dr. B.J. Fogg. And this is actually a book that I'm currently reading. So a lot of the information that I'm about to deliver in this episode actually is extracted from that exact book. 
Now, a little background on Fogg. I just want to let you know, uh, BJ Fogg, he's a behavioral psychologist, behavior scientist at Stanford University who has studied behavior for over 20 years. He has also founded a behavior design lab at Stanford, and he's come up with this concept and this and this model of behavior and how to change it or break it. And it's called the Fogg Behavioral Model. And he's put this model to the test on over 40,000 people, including himself. And his book really stresses the importance of how starting small with the changes that we want to make in our lives will help us put some of those correct systems and routines in place so that we can eventually build our skills to make those larger changes that we desire. And not only that, but so that we are really feeling good about ourselves and so that we're really feeling successful in what we're trying to do. And, you know, as I stated, the the book really starts by discussing why it's so important to start small, even if we have lofty ambitions about what we want to change. You know, and the whole premise of starting small is that it gives us a much higher chance at creating small success and again, feeling like we're doing something that's moving us in the right direction because it's very doable, this starting small idea. It's very doable, and it's not overwhelming at all. And starting small could look like meditating for 30 seconds, doing two push-ups, flossing one tooth, or anything in between. These are actually the the two push-ups and the flossing one tooth are actually a couple of examples that uh, Fogg mentions in his book. Now, these three ideas that I just mentioned, the short meditation, the short, the low amount of push-ups, flossing one tooth, these are ideas that are more likely to create the beginnings of change as opposed to trying to meditate, like sit down for the first time and meditate for 30 minutes or just going from off the couch to doing 200 push-ups or right after you brush your teeth, flossing all of your teeth in one day, you know, trying to do those actions and trying to partake in those behaviors on day one of starting a new habit are, you know, you could be super motivated and I'll, I'll get into the motivation piece uh, shortly here, but, you know, you could be super motivated and, and actually follow through maybe on the first couple of days, subsequent days, maybe even a couple of weeks, but eventually your motivation is going to be very, very low and you're not likely going to engage in whatever behavior you're starting to try to create as a habit. And so whatever the habit it is that we want to create, we should try to think of the smallest action to implement because starting small, again, allows us the opportunity to start right away, knowing that we don't have to commit a ton of our time to kickstart some changes because that variable of time is often one that really gets in our way when we decide that we want to start making some more changes in our lives. And it really affects our motivation very heavily as well. And there also seems to be what I like to call a luring effect that starting small has or almost the the idea of creating momentum. Like once you're sucked in, you want to keep going. So that idea of those small successes, it's very, very attractive and it's very seductive. And once we're engaged in those small behaviors, there's a chance that, you know, we could even pass our initial intention by engaging for a long period of time. So for example, if you, if you start your small change by wanting to just do two push-ups, even just doing three is surpassing that intention, which again is, is very a very pleasing feeling knowing that you went a little bit above and beyond what you set out to do. 
And by starting small, we actually also start to create a feedback loop for ourselves to make decisions about whether or not our implementation plan is actually working. And not that starting larger wouldn't do that as well, but starting small gives us something that is a lot more manageable in terms of figuring out whether or not we're doing the right things and and following through in the right way. You know, we might ask ourselves, is this change that I'm trying to make a just right start? Did we try to bite off more than we could chew? Did we start too simple? And whatever the answer is, we should use it to analyze whether or not our plan got off on the right foot or needs some adjustments. And before we get into how we can start implementing the implementation process, it's important for us to discuss the components of behavior and to to start with that, it's important to know that all behavior, and this is where Fogg's behavior model comes into play. Um, he states that all behavior can be mapped. So essentially behavior equals motivation plus ability plus prompt. What that means is that any behavior we engage in takes a certain amount of motivation combined with a certain level of ability to do the behavior, which gets prompted. For example, we get hungry, right? So that's our prompt. <clears throat> we then, and it also can even serve as our as our motivation to search for food, right? So it kind of serves twofold there where we get hungry and then that's our motivation to then try to track down food. So we start taking a few steps from the living room into the kitchen to grab a snack. And that's the ability where it's pretty easy to do for most people unless you have some challenge, some physical challenges, and it's hard for you to get up off the couch and walk. But, um, you know, taking those few steps from the living room into the kitchen to grab a snack is a, is a very easy thing for most people to do. Therefore, a lot of people have high ability to do it. The behaviors that we tend to engage in the most are the behaviors that we are a highly motivated to do. And B, have the ability to do, whether it is due to the fact that we are highly skilled or that the behavior is simple, like the one that I had just mentioned. However, there always needs to be some type of prompt present for the behavior to manifest, meaning that there needs to be something to cue up the behavior. So therefore, any behavior that we engage in has those three components and we're over what Fogg refers to as the action line. And the action line is the threshold that we need to pass in order for us to engage in a behavior. And this can actually happen in a few ways. So for those of you that, that follow me on the, the various social medias, I'll follow up with this and, and talk a little bit more about the Fogg behavioral model. And I'll try to post it onto some of my other platforms as well, just so people can get the visual. But I'll try to talk through the visual of Fogg's behavior model that he created. So if we imagine that the that motivation is on a y-axis and ability is on the x-axis, <clears throat> motivation we have on the, on the y, the bottom is a very low level of motivation, at the top is a very high level of motivation. Ability is on the x-axis, on the left side, it's it's something that is very hard to do. On the right side, it's something very easy to do. And then there is this action line that is slightly curved and there are prompts as well that fall either below or above the action line. So when we have medium to high levels of ability, meaning something that's 
somewhat easy or very easy to do, it's much easier for us to pass that action line, even if our motivation is low, just because it's something that we're already pretty skilled in. So any prompts that we have to prompt us with that medium to easy behavior, medium level to easy behavior, we're more than likely going to succeed in engaging in the behavior. You know, so like I said, even though, you know, and then if we have um, also high level, medium to high levels of motivation with that as well. So when we combine the medium to high ability with the medium to high motivation, that's always going to push us past the action line. And that's where the two will meet with that prompt. Now, we also could have, again, like I was saying previously, um, you know, high levels of ability or the behavior is super easy but we might not be super motivated. If our ability is so high, meaning we're super skilled, or if the, uh, the behavior is super easy to do, we could have a day where we're not super motivated, but it'll still push us past the action line as long as we have a good prompt that really anchors that behavior, even though we're not super motivated. And the last one, if even if we have, let's say we, we have something that's extremely hard to do, right? But we have, and so therefore it's low on the ability axis, but we have extremely high levels of motivation. You know, even though our ability to perform is super high, excuse me, even if our ability to perform isn't super high, that's what I meant to say. And because the, the action is very hard, our motivation, because it's so high, will still be able to push us past that action line. So a good concrete example for this is some of those stories that you hear when, for example, let's say there's a there's a mother out there who all of a sudden has this superhuman rush of motivation because her child is trapped under a car. So she might be able to nudge this 2,000-pound car ever so slightly to have her child escape from underneath that car because her motivation is so high to protect her child, even though <laughs> moving a car for just about anybody, even uh, some of the strongest people in the world is, is extremely challenging. But that motivation is so high, it pushes that mother past that action line. Um, and like I said, I think it'll be, it'll make a little bit more sense if folks want to want to take a dive into the um, model itself and see that visually all you have to type in is BJ Fogg behavior model into any search browser, and I'll also try to do a follow-up uh, later on at some point this week. And so considering that cues and prompts, right, so those are what signal or trigger behavior, those are actually the most important aspect of behavior when it comes to implementation. Because again, without a cue or a prompt, there is no behavior. By creating a prompt, we send messages to our prefrontal cortex, which is the decision-making area of our brain that inform us that it's time to engage in a behavior. We often have unconsciously created a lot of prompts with a lot of the things that we do. Okay, so for example, prompt, we're tired. Behavior, we drink coffee. Prompt, we're hungry. Behavior, we eat. Prompt, we're bored. Behavior, we scroll social media. So a lot of those and all of those states that precede those habits are cues for the behaviors that many of us use uh, in our lives that have already been created. So 
If we're trying to create a new habit or take an old habit out of our life, we must examine the cues that we have because those are what prompt behavior. And some examples of cues and prompts that we might need to start consciously building, you know, or start consciously using and and creating, depending on what we're optimizing for. You know, maybe if we want to try to start a new exercise routine, a prompt that could then get us to do that, more likely to do that, I should say, is to lay out exercise clothes the night before a workout that you're going to have the next day. If we're trying to get to bed at a certain time, you know, then we should probably try to turn our phones off at a certain time before we go to bed. Or if we're trying to learn more and try to practice our focused attention, prompt is to probably try to find a quiet area or a certain area of your living space so that you can focus deeply. That quietness in that specific area would be the prompt that you are about to enter a state of deep focus. And whatever the behavior is that we're trying to add, you know, it's important for us to think of some prompts that will stimulate the behavior, you know, but then if we're trying to remove a habit from our lives, we should take the opposite approach, you know, so for example, if we're trying to eat healthier, it's probably best to remove the snacks and junk food, or at least make them much harder to get to. So maybe you throw them all the way up at the top of the highest cupboard that you have. So then you have to either climb your climb your shelves or, or climb your climb your countertops in order to get there. If we're trying to start a meditation practice, again, going back to what I was talking about with the deep focus, if we're going to try to start a meditation practice, it's probably important to try to remove some of those noise and distractions that could cue distraction uh, and remove those for the small period of time that you're trying to meditate for. And although prompts are an extremely important aspect of behavior, the next most important, in my opinion, um, aspect of behavior is motivation. And motivation can be thought of as our willingness or our level of inspiration to engage in a specific behavior. And the challenge with with uh, motivation is that it's super fleeting, but it can also be a very powerful component of behavior uh, on a moment-to-moment basis, kind of like what I was talking about with with the <clears throat> the mother who who lifted the car, extremely motivated, right, in that moment. So therefore, she was able to overcome that challenge of moving a car, even though she may or may not have had uh, much ability to do so. Now, Fogg mentions that there are actually different types of motivation that we experience. And one that he mentions is the motivation wave. And what that looks like is the person who sets out on their New Year's resolutions full steam ahead and really just absolutely crushes it for a short while. Because eventually their motivation, you know, it's sky high, we can think of as that wave forming and percolating. And that's them moving ahead and really following through on their goals. But then it kind of reaches an apex and the wave starts to curl over. And then soon enough, their motivation crashes just like that wave against the shore and they return to their old habits. Another type of motivation is just the genu- uh, the, the general motivation fluctuation. This is when we have high levels of motivation to do something one day and almost no motivation to do it the next day. So, you know, something that I kind of think of is something that I've actually even experienced in my own life is uh, running. I've not really always been a great distance runner. I've been more of a, more of a short burst type of athlete, short sprinting movements. Um, 
And so there have been times in my life though, where I have engaged in a running habit. So, but that motivation fluctuates on a day-to-day basis because there are some days where I'm super motivated. I'm super ready. I'll go out and I'll run anywhere from three to five miles. But then the next day I don't, I don't want to run at all. Um, and so, you know, similar to the motivation wave, again, we can ride the fluctuating motivation for a little bit. Um, but you know, that, that roller coaster, excuse me, that fluctuation is more like a roller coaster that kind of ends up going, uh, off track. Um, whereas that, that wave just kind of comes crashing down. The fluctuation is a lot more sporadic and, and it's either really hit or miss some days. And, um, the main reason that motivation is so tricky is uh, is due to the fact that there's, there's this variant on what Fogg refers to as the PAC principles, P-A-C, PAC, like Pac-Man. Um, and it varies from person to person because each, so PAC stands for person action context. So every person is different. They engage in different actions and they all have different contexts of their environments. And when it comes to motivation, motivation, strength, and endurance varies from person to person as a result of everybody being different, as a result of gauge, engaging in different actions and having different contexts of their environment. Um, so therefore, people stay motivated uh, or not for different amounts of time. And there is also, there is an action which we receive when there's either so when we engage in a behavior there's an action which we either receive a reward or a punishment from afterwards and the strength of this reward or punishment heavily influences whether or not we're likely to engage in the behavior again something that i thought of really quickly is that you know it probably only takes most people <laughs> touching a hot stove burner one time to not repeat that behavior again because the punishment is pretty high for most people unless you're a masochist and you enjoy pain Um, and then, you know, there are also other examples of other behaviors that if you engage in it once and you get a reward from it, you know, you can probably think of one yourselves that you're more than likely going to be, uh, doing that again. And in the context, the last piece of pack, uh, the context of the environment also matters because we often want to be engaging in socially accepted behaviors to stay part of an in-group to reinforce that we matter to other people and that we matter to the world. And not only that, but there are also environmental influences within our contexts, whether it's people, places, things that influence us. And this is why people who see advertisements for fast food on billboards or on TV while trying to diet have a high likely, may have a high likelihood or higher likelihood of getting off that diet. Once their threshold of resistance is broken with the subliminal messaging of these advertisements for fast food. And lastly, in order for behavior to happen, we need to have the ability in order to make the behavior happen. Whether it is an action or activity that we're highly skilled in, like I've said before, this all uh, creates high levels of ability. Or if it's an activity that is easy for us to do uh, and anyone can complete, you know, those also, therefore, uh, we have a high ability to do those just because they're they're easy. It don't, doesn't take much skill. And in order for us to make sure, um, and so the last part of mapping is that in order for the behavior to happen, we need to have the ability in order to make the behavior happen. 
whether it is an action or activity that we're highly skilled in, this would create a high level of ability, or it's an activity that is easy for anyone to complete. You know, so therefore those engaging in it have the ability to do it because it's easy. We must be able to complete the action that constitutes the behavior. This is a big reason why we engage in easy behaviors repetitively, like scrolling social media. It's very easy for us to do this, and it's very easy for this to become a habit because our phones are often either right in our pockets or within arm's reach, and then we just one tap for the app that we want to use, and boom, we're scrolling. This is also why it's really hard for us to stick with certain behaviors to create habits. If something that we're trying to create as a habit is too difficult to do every day, it makes the habit less sticky. Not only that, but there are other factors besides our physical capabilities that affect our ability, such as time, money, mental energy, and whether or not we can fit the behavior into our current list of daily habits and routines and our current to-do lists. If we don't feel like we have the time or we literally don't, we won't do it. This is a big reason why people start and stop exercising habits. I know I've been one person to, to do that. Um, you know, reason being is that we're told that we need to exercise for at least 30 minutes every single day. And that doesn't always fit into our, our current schedule. It doesn't always fit into our day unless we, again, consciously make the time for it. It also might be too mentally draining or physically demanding for people to exercise for that long. And if they don't have the money to invest in a gym membership, a lot of people often say forget exercise altogether. And the same can be said for a lot of other habits like meditation, healthy eating, journaling, etc. But um, the the second to last piece I'm going to talk about is implementation. And when we're trying to create a plan for change, it's important to ask a set of questions that can help us create a roadmap for success. And the first question that we should try to ask is what habits do I want to add or remove in my life? It's important to be very specific. That way we can try to start to think of some behaviors that can help kickstart the habit. Again, the smaller the better because we want to try to be consistent with these behaviors over time in order to create a habit. A second question for us to think about is what prompts or cues need to be added or removed to trigger the behavior? Cues or prompts are the most important aspect of behavior because, again, it is the cue or the prompt that signals an onset of behavior to the brain. Without a cue, without a prompt, no behavior. A third question to ask is, what is my motivation? It's crucial for us to know the reasons why we want to change. Yes, it can be fleeting and come and go in waves and spurts, but a clear motivation can help serve as fuel at times and help us come up with aspirations and goals. These aspirations and goals can help fuel brainstorming of small behaviors that we can add to our everyday lives and routines to start turning small changes into big changes. And lastly, it's important to ask the question, what is my current ability level? And this is probably one of the most crucial questions when it comes to starting small, because if we're giving ourselves an honest assessment, it will give us an honest starting point for what our skill set is or isn't. And from there, it will be easier to generate implementable ideas because we'll be more realistic with them. Not only that, but it could be the perceived difficulty of feeling the need to implement larger changes that has been holding us back up until this point. So therefore, the analysis of current ability level will help us kind of scale back a little bit. When it comes to adding a behavior to create a habit, a great starting point would be to think of the habits that we've already created that we're more than likely going to keep. Maybe it's waking up at a specific time, making a cup of coffee in the morning, 
eating meals at the same time or exercising at a certain time, whatever the habit that is that you already have, we can use that as an anchor to stack another habit on top of it. For example, if we want to create a new reading habit, after making a cup of coffee, we could immediately begin reading a book. This strategy is is referred or can be referred to uh, as an implementation intention. Essentially, after X, I will do Y. This helps a tremendous amount because it creates a system and procedure for a new change that is specific in its time and location. We all have great ideas about what we want to change, but we don't always get super detailed about how we're going to change, which is why implementation intentions will help tremendously. They give us clarity that we need in order to know when to engage in the new habit. This will also help us follow through even when our motivation levels are low because we'll have created a cue or prompt to start the behavior. And it's not all going to go perfectly, so it's important for us to talk a little bit about feedback. And when we do make mistakes, because they will happen, these are actually ways that we can tweak the systems and processes that we've put into action. This is a crucial aspect of implementing new habits or stopping old habits because it is based on the fundamental understanding that we are not flawed, it's our systems that are flawed. And this is a big idea that Fogg really pushes in his book, which is something that I I too have started to agree with the more that I started uh, to engage in, in his research. And with that said, it's important that we refrain from shaming ourselves because Fogg states, and I'm sure many others would agree, that the best changes take place when people are feeling good, feeling good about themselves, feeling good about their actions and feeling good about their surroundings. The more shame or blame that we put on ourselves, the more guilty we'll end up feeling. And soon enough, our motivation and drive to change is as flat as a pop tire. This is another reason why people often start and stop multiple times when it comes to habit changes. And on the contrary, when we're feeling good about ourselves and the actions that we're taking in the context of our environment, We're much more motivated and inspired to keep going because that good feeling is coming from the micro progression that we're making towards a better version of ourselves. The more positive emotion that we can experience during the changes that we make, the more likely it is that we'll want to repeat those changes in order to repeat the feeling of positive emotion. It's also important to celebrate those micro progressions because it is an acknowledgement of a job well done and an acknowledgement that we're on the right path to bettering ourselves. And this acknowledgement often releases dopamine from our brain throughout our body and will make us want to do more of that behavior due to the dopamine release. And so to start wrapping up and conclude here, I just want to go over some of the main points. And so in sum, when it comes to making sustainable changes in our lives, it is best to start small. It's important for us to remember that we are not flawed, but rather our previous systems of implementation are flawed. This is why we should try to understand the components of behavior so that we can figure out a system that works for us, not for other people, for us. Not only that, but remember that all behavior is mapped. Behavior equals motivation plus ability plus prompt because behavior is, again, the sum of those three things. Without these prompts, and again, this is the most important aspect of behavior, without the prompts, there will be no behavior. And without the removal of prompts, behaviors are much harder to be removed if that's our goal for change. When it comes to motivation, we should remember how unreliable it truly is because how it comes and goes and waves and it's very fleeting. It also fluctuates from moment to moment, day to day, week to week, etc. This is why it is also important to be transparent with ourselves about our current abilities as well as the ability of how easy or difficult it is to implement the change that we want to make right away. We mustn't get down on ourselves when we fail, 
but rather see them as learning opportunities to make new changes to our current plans. And we must take pride in all of the glory of improvement because at the end of the day, that's all that we're all trying to do. So thank you for listening, folks. I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to give this a listen. You can follow me on social media at Warden's Wisdom on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's one way to stay up to date with the podcasts and all of the happenings of the website. And the best way to support not only the podcast, but our website is to visit them. And most importantly, try to share it with somebody that you also think will enjoy the content that is being provided because that's the whole mission of Warden's Wisdom is to try to provide people with information that is practical and hopefully applicable to their lives. So thank you again for listening and please feel free to share it. And if you are an avid listener of the podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks again, folks, and tune in next time.